0: If I've learned one thing from Lost, is you don't go open in secret hatches.
1: Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of From Broadcast Depth, a retrospective podcast all about Lost. This must be Magic the Gathering because we're doing a time warp through Season 5. I'm Kevin. He is Ben. Ben, how are we doing this week? I think we're doing a lot of time warps. There's a lot of time warping going
0: on. Uh, I'm great. My understanding is that while I am on Thanksgiving break, you unfortunately are not completely on break.
1: Yeah, not for not for a couple of days. It's a here. bummer. It's okay. I've got i got school work to do. I'm doing a, I'm actually doing an early Thanksgiving with family yeah. uh, tonight as we record this. So,
0: are you are you have people traveling somewhere or something?
1: Or? Yeah, like my uh, my girlfriend's going to see her family in Chicago. My mm-hmm. uh, my brother is going to see his in laws down in South Carolina. So my whole immediate family is getting together tonight, and then I'll just do something with my parents on on Thanksgiving Day. Well, it, we're,
0: we're both having non traditional elements to our Thanksgivings because we are apparently having a lasagna from Costco for Thanksgiving. So we decided that after this major kitchen project we're about to do, that we probably wouldn't want to put a whole lot of effort into cooking like all day the next day.
1: So I'm about it. You know, maybe yeah. you guys could just microwave some Hot Pockets with sleeves to have instead <laughs> with the seat the sleeves make them gourmet hot pot. <laughs> that's right yeah that's that's how you know it's a true thanksgiving meal is if you're putting the sleeves on them
0: yeah so i don't have a precise pivot into our uh, lost episode Well, how about
1: this well you know what those sound like better thanksgivings than being stranded on a desert island with oh no food, huh? that's a good one Ah, there we are very
0: good i was gonna pivot into saying that we were gonna try to use a little of the break to catch up on and doing some more uh podcasting so that's a transition as well. But, yeah, you went for the um the the whole deserted on an island. I, I would take just about any kind of Thanksgiving food, regardless of how traditional it was if I was bouncing around, not only surviving on an island but now bouncing around in time, apparently. So yeah. right.
1: And I think we have a, we have episodes three and four, of course, of season five here. But you had mentioned because we have a, no music in either episodes, which saves us a little bit of time, that you had some stuff from the Lost Series Bible, which we haven't had the chance to tap into recently just because the ends of season three and, all, and pretty much all of season four are really dense and condensed. Yeah. So maybe it's time to revisit some of those fun things in the series Bible that you found apparently relevant to the episodes today.
0: Yeah, let's jump back into the Bible a little bit. So uh, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that, uh, you know, as Kevin said, it's been a while, but we periodically look at the Lost Series Bible. It's a document that you can find online just by Googling Lost Series Bible. Made some headlines when it first sort of was scanned and surfaced on the Internet. But uh, a really fun FAQ, Q&A, you name it, for uh, the folks who were Trying to pitch the series to ABC and then sort of some guidelines for the writers to go on. Today, I did uh, pick out a couple things that I thought were slightly relevant to where we are in season five, which is kind of interesting when you think about where we're now, you know, over four years removed from these early episodes that this Bible was mainly written to apply to, but the themes are still kind of relevant. So, The first thing i have is in the faq at the beginning of the bible um this heading and i promise it's not a spoiler the question is so what is the island exactly the answer that they write here is the answer to precisely that question is the core of lost mythology unlike the x-files however this mythology is compartmentalized as opposed to interconnected in other words the history of our island spans centuries every time a new person or people arrives on its shore a new story begins This opens the door to almost limitless possibilities. In one story, our group finds what seems to be a Nazi bunker. In other stories, we might chance upon evidence that hints at a history that is considerably more ancient. It's also worth mentioning that the island is big, as we never see it from above, its true size remains a continuing mystery. Now when I read this, Kevin, I thought about, you know, it made me think of Jughead, where we have sort of a separate story starting and Kind of, I would say, probably the furthest back we've seen so far. And, uh, you know, how it does feel like every sort of generation or iteration of visitors to the island has their own stories. We've spent the majority of our time with, obviously, the survivors of Oceanic 815, but we know that there was a whole group that was there for the Dharma Initiative. And now we're seeing this military group, you know, so those iterations sort of stuck out to me. And then also, of course, it mentions some of the ancient stuff, which we've be- been getting little hints at as we go along, too. So I thought that was kind of relevant.
1: This reminds me of a podcast I listened to recently with uh, Kristen Bell, Veronica Mars. You know, she's on The Good Place now. She was interviewed by Mark Marin and they talked about The Good Place, which I don't have you seen The Good Place? I,
0: you know, I've actually just been telling
1: myself I need to go revisit it. Uh, have you yeah. been watching it? Yes, I, I'm a big fan of it. I've really okay. enjoyed it. But they're, they're talking about it and they mention how Michael Schur, who was behind Parks and Rec and is is behind this show, too, how he, he knows, essentially has a plan from the beginning as to what this is all going to end up being. And she makes a comment like, unlike Lost, where they just kept adding people to the island to expand the story <laughs> and having to bring on new cast members, which I thought was a funny little jab. But I also feel like I've heard in either a commentary or something else from one of the people on one of the extras on the the. The DVDs or Blu-rays that—that's kind of exactly what happens. Is you add to add these new characters to just add new blood to the show. Now I
0: I like Kristen Bell. She seems like a perfectly nice person, but that is a weird comment to me because to me, uh, character is the heart of anything that you write. And so I to add add more new interesting characters to me seems like a little strange that that would be called out as a negative. I guess it's popular to make little jabs at Lost because of how controversial the ending was. You know, I actually kind of, one of my criticisms of season five is that there aren't any main cast members that are newly introduced. Every other season of the show has at least uh, one or two new main cast members, and this one doesn't. I think another, I think a better example is actually what it mentions right in these two paragraphs I just read, which is the X-Files. Now, and I love the X-Files, but I actually feel like the standalone episodes are what they call the Monster of the Week episodes a lot of those actually hold up better over time because when you watch the series from start to finish, the mythology of the X-Files gets so convoluted and so complicated there's a couple more paragraphs in the section of the Bible that I read here, but uh, one of them is talks about how they don't want to get you know bogged down with one huge overall mythology that they introduce elements and those elements get answered. And if you think about that, that's what they've done. I mean, we've sort of we've seen the freighter story arc kind of come and go. There were questions about the freighter who's on it. Are they here to do us harm? Or are they here to help us? that's pretty much been resolved, you know? And so we've got a few people left over from the freighter, so the freighter has sort of left its mark, so to speak, on on the longer history of the show. But they do sort of think in arcs. There's the hatch. The mystery of the hatch has pretty much been explored. And I think that that's smart. They even refer to it as compartmentalizing. Uh, So I think the X-Files is actually probably a better example of what she was talking about, uh, where over time, if you just compound the mysteries that it's eventually going to get out of hand until literally you just bog down and, and it just sort of loses all cohesion. I don't want to knock it because there's so much that I love about it, but I will say, go back to what I just said a couple minutes ago, to me, the things that hold the whole, holds the whole thing together is the characters of Mother, Mulder and Scully. If those two characters weren't so lovable, the show would fall apart. And I think it's true on Lost too. We have so many characters that are lovable on the show or people that you root for and get behind that it holds the mythology together. All right, so the second section I've got here the Bible is, you're going to see right away how this is, I think, uh, important is. The question is, so what about the other craft survivors? Are they just hanging around all the time? Again, this is the beginning of the series when we know there's like 40-some survivors, but they're pitching it as there's only 13 or 14 main characters. And the answer is, of the 47 survivors referenced in the pilot, we only meet 14. The other 33, well, we'll certainly begin to wonder who they are and what they're up to after a while, and that's why they're all disappearing. It's our intent that by the third episode, or fourth at the latest, the unspeaking masses will officially vanish under extremely mysterious circumstances. Of course, the sudden and unexpected reduction of their numbers puts even more strain on those left behind, not to mention an ongoing fear that they may be next. Of course, any of these 33 could turn up later in the series with partial recollections of where they've been. But that's another story. So, Kevin, you can see how with a couple – the the original intent, as crazy as it sounded, was to whittle it down to the 14 main cast members within a few episodes of the beginning of the series.
1: And it took them four seasons to essentially do that?
0: (laughs) Right, yeah. So I want to talk about this a little more as we get into – the uh, the episodes we've got here today, but we have been on a steady diet of watching randos buy it left and right for about half a season now, and so I thought that was a relevant time to mention this. And also, I think some of this was woven into a couple other storylines, like when it when it talks about them disappearing. You know, that's kind of what happened with the tail section people, where like half of them disappeared over the course of in, in the other 48 days, that flashback episode. And then, of course, the idea of showing up with only a partial recollection of where you've been. Well, that's kind of what happened to Claire. So even in the series Bible here, even some of the uh, stuff that that uh, they decided to you know, change their decisions on, on how they were going to go about it, a lot of the elements uh, crept in here and there throughout the series. But I think this will be relevant when we start talking about Jughead in a minute here.
1: Well, and before we get into Jughead, I do want to mention both my episode and your episode introduce new writers to the Lost Universe. Okay. Uh, This first one is written by Elizabeth Sarnoff, who is a Lost veteran at this point, award-winning Lost writer at that, Mm -hmm. but she is joined by, I'm going to butcher his name and I apologize, but Paul Zebazuski, something along those lines. But either way, this is is the first of uh, six episodes he'll write overall for seasons five and six that he has written. He also was brought on as a supervising producer. And when looking at what he's he's doing, he's working on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is another ABC Studios production. But before that, he uh, was a writer on the show Daybreak, which I think, Ben, might be the show that Nestor Carbonell was cast on that got canceled.
0: No, the one that he got cast on that was canceled, at least as it pertains to why he was gone in season four, was Kane, I believe. It was spelled K-A-N-E did you do some research on that or maybe I'm well, so I purely know early on my recollection. So if you got more up up so to date information, so
1: I know the show was daybreak and Esther Carbonell was on it. Maybe he was just recurring. And I, and I think that that works out because it was in 2006. So that would have been a different time period than when season four was airing. Yeah, that would have uh, been
0: season three, I think.
1: And I think it was on the same time slot as lost was when lost was in you know, on hiatus during yeah. that period. So I guess he's part of the ABC family, and now he has moved from the show over to Lost and Jughead. Episode three of season five is his first episode, along with Elizabeth Sarnoff yes. his co-writer. All right. So we do have a previous on for this, where we see Ben turning the donkey wheel, uh, which caused all this time-traveling mayhem. Daniel explaining that either the island is time-traveling or that the people are. And then Desmond waking up from a vivid memory of Daniel, finding him at the hatch and telling him to go find his mother in Cambridge. Uh, But of course, they flash before he can give Desmond her name, unfortunately. (laughs) And so I'm going to do the off-island stuff with Desmond first. All right. We actually don't start. I mean, a lot of this is going to be Desmond's mission to go find Daniel Faraday's mother, but we actually start with the birth of his and Penny's son. Now they're still living on a boat. So you get this frantic scene to start where Desmond's running through this Filipino village and he finds this doctor who's uh, in the middle of a card game, comes to the boat, helps Penny deliver the baby boy. And uh, it's all lovey-dovey between Desmond and Penny. So now they have they have a child. So we do get an introduction of a new cast member, Ben,
0: <laughs> the little baby and the little baby with a, a name that brought us here to many lost eyes. Yes.
1: Which we do not get to reveal till the end of the episode. Oh, Okay. So we'll get that. And it's, it's quickly name dropped by Desmond here, but we will, we will get to that in a second, but we cut to three years later and now it's uh it's Desmond on the boat. They're going towards Cambridge, but I love this because it's him explaining to his son, who's I guess three years old at this point about this mysterious island that he never thought he would return to, but he's referring to Great Britain, not the island itself. I thought that was a, another fun little twist. I like when Lost does those kind of things.
0: Always oh, a good fake out.
1: Penny is, of course, apprehensive about this whole thing, thinking that they're putting themselves in danger of their father by going on this mission for Daniel. But Desmond says he has to do it, and in his mind, once he completes this mission, he is done with the island forever. Um, So I think he's both doing this for Daniel, but selfishly, he's hoping that this will put the island behind him once and for all if he's able to do this for him.
0: Yeah, well, there's a little brief conversation, too, about her having trouble understanding, you know, why all of a sudden he has to do this, why he's remembering this now. So I think it might be worth repeating what we said last time, which is that we're operating under the assumption here that Desmond is the only person who can change history. Am I speaking for both of us? And that's sort of what we concluded last time.
1: I mean, that's exactly, I think, what Daniel spelled out, that, you know, everything I told Sawyer about that you can't change what happened, what happened, happened is true, except for you. You have the ability to change these things because you're special or what have you.
0: So based on this massive blast of, you know, uh, island energy, radiation, electromagnetism that he got at the end of season two, this has made Desmond completely different from everybody else. And he's able to change history yeah, I think just going forward, it's important to remember that because, you know, this memory was like just suddenly popped into his head at the right time. And it's because Daniel spoke to Desmond at a time when initially he hadn't.
1: Right. And that's why he was able to get his attention knocking on the hatch and. Yeah. And uh, Sawyer was not. So we go to Desmond. First, he decides I'm going to go back to the university where he worked to try to get some information. But there's no record of Faraday working here which is obviously strange. And he goes by the physics department to go to where Daniel's office was, which of course he has seen before in the constant. And it's shut down for fumigation, but he breaks into it anyways. And he finds that chalkboard, the rat maze, uh, everything that we, that he saw in the constant is there, but it's all covered with tarps. And he even finds a photo of Daniel with this unknown female, and a man like a custodian or type catches Desmond looking through all this stuff and tells Desmond that they've been instructed to rid of the evidence that Faraday ever worked there and all of the work he was doing because of what he did to that poor girl. So Daniel did something with his experimentation or his science that affected some young female. And this has pretty much got him excommunicated and wiped from the record from this university.
0: I like how you say excommunicated.
1: <laughs> Had to be something pretty severe. Yeah. So what Daniel does is he decides to go find this woman whose name is Teresa Spencer, and he finds her in a private residence, but she is in a coma of sorts, and uh, her sister Abigail is taking care of her. Uh, She calls Daniel a coward for abandoning Teresa, but praises her benefactor, Charles Widmore, who is paying for the medical support and also was the one who funded Faraday's experiments at the university. Pretty significant information.
0: Again. Yeah, this is the first of a couple of really big, obviously, Widmore connections that we get this episode. You know, we're just, in season four, we found that Charles Widmore was sort of the antagonist to Ben Linus and that he was coming to the island to destroy us all and God help us and all this stuff. And now we're getting, we're, the the connections are getting even more and more significant. To the extent that apparently, you know, he's funded Daniel Faraday's research for years and years and years. To I guess to what end is something that we, we don't know yet, but that's a big connection. Also, real quick, Kevin, I know you mentioned that the woman, Teresa, was in a coma, but uh, I think it's also worth pointing out she basically was having the same symptoms as the people who were having the problems on the freighter last season.
1: Yeah, it's essentially she's in the state that Minkowski was in where her body is still there, but her mind is traveling through time.
0: But honestly, you know, it seems to me like whatever phenomenon, you know, that uh, Faraday was researching, it was essentially a replication of the natural phenomenon that takes place on the island, which we know now we can sort of definitively say to have some sort of like barrier around it that sort of separates it from the rest of the world. Not a physical barrier, but some sort of timey-wimey whatever. We found that out last time because Faraday was within the radius when he was on the raft, so he time-traveled with everybody else. But there's something that separates the island from the rest of the world. And basically he managed to inadvertently replicate the same phenomenon in his lab because because the effects on Teresa were the same.
1: Well, this whole revelation decides that Desmond's next step is going to be to go to Charles Widmore himself, bursting into his office, demanding to know where Faraday's mother is. And Widmore responds with his own question, and that is, is Penny safe? And he asks this because he has not seen her for three years. So mm-hmm. their relationship is tarnished, non-existent, since she's with Desmond now at the on the high seas. Yeah. Uh, Widmore does not get an answer to this question. Desmond presses on. And he eventually does get Daniel's mother's address. She is in Los Angeles, but Widmore warns him that she's a very private person and likely will not be happy to see him. And then he asks for Desmond to go back into hiding once he sees her and gets his answer and to keep himself and Penny out of this whole situation as it started years ago. Well, before they were and they pretty much got brought into this mess and he wants them to stay safe. So you get this again, this idea that there's been this ongoing struggle for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And this is really the first time that Woodmore sh- shown some compassion for his daughter and her well-being.
0: The ironic thing about it is that I don't think we've ever even seen a scene with Penny and, and Charles Woodmore in the same room together. I don't think they've ever actually shared a scene together. That's a good point. I think you're right. You know, and I th- and and when I saw this, I read this. Yes, there's a larger, there's a bigger struggle going on, but I read this more directly as Widmore almost being grateful for the fact that Penny was off the grid because of the fact that Ben has resolved to murder her. Widmore is now living under the idea that Ben Linus, who he knows is a man who is. First of all, very devious and dastardly, but also extremely well-connected, as we've seen in these last couple episodes, is bent on killing his daughter. So I think it's almost uh, an ironic thing for Charles Woodmore that uh, his his uh, son-in-law, who he hates and who he's treated like shit ever since the first minute he met him, is living off the grid with his uh, with his daughter, actually works out to his advantage. And poor Charles Widmore is a grandpa and doesn't even know it yeah that's true too yeah i mean desmond was pretty ballsy here right i mean first of all just to go up to widmore at all but also talk about a contrast between the last couple times he's interacted with this guy
1: yeah i mean i guess that's what time away from somebody will do and uh, the confidence of a, of a father of a husband and trying to do the right thing yeah get the, get this pass behind him yeah uh so our last scene is desmond returning to penny in the boat after this interaction and he tries to lie to her saying that oh faraday's mother is dead so we'll move on from here But she knows he's lying, and so Desmond confesses that he learned she's in Los Angeles, but doesn't really want to follow through on finding her, because Penny and their son, who is named Charlie, are his life now. But Penny says Desmond will never be able to forget the island, and that her and Charlie are going to go with him to Los Angeles. Um, So Penny sort of resigned herself to the fact that Desmond's has to go on this mission to to get the island out of his system or that it's just always going to be a part of his life. But yes, the the son is named Charlie, which I, I of course, took to immediately mean this was named in, uh, in Memorial of Charlie, who, of course, uh, was the basically the reasoning, his, his own selflessness is what brought Penny and Desmond together. Uh, but also, this is named after her father, who has kind of kept them apart. So you have that juxtaposition there.
0: Right. It's very ironic. And I mean, we don't think of... Charles Widmore we don't think of him as oh Charlie you know like nobody calls him that so I do think it's more about Charlie Pace and I think that's how the fans took it because uh this was definitely something where people the misty eyes when when it was revealed that Desmond uh, had named his son after Charlie Pace
1: Yeah. I mean, I I have to imagine there was a major burden for Desmond to be the one to tell him you're going to die, Charlie, and then to watch him die and Charlie to go through this selfless act and the bonding they had in the looking glass. This seems very appropriate for their son to be named after. For sure. Yep. And so that ends the off island stuff. I thought this was a pretty uh, cool little story with Desmond here. It was nice.
0: And it stands in in real sharp contrast to the, the episode before it and the episode after it that I'm about to do. In that it, it was a really tightly constructed narrative. It was just Desmond and you know, so he got the spotlight. And we're we're talking about the, you know, the format of the show now isn't really about a flashback or a flash forward that centers around one character. So I appreciated that even if it's just, you know, if if now the two story components are on island versus off island, that one of them at least was centered around just one person. I think that was that was good.
1: Yeah, I do, too. It was was nice and easy to follow, and it was very distinct from the island story, which is also just a group of people. We get none of the Oceanic Six here in this episode. This is all specifically people on the island, which I kind of like because I find this on island stuff very interesting. So when we last uh, left our survivors, time had flashed. We saw some mercenaries capture Juliet and Sawyer, but thankfully Locke caught up with them and saved them. But our freighter folk are separated for them at this point. Uh, along with a couple of our other scrubs, our red shirts, if you will. And uh, we reduce our red shirts, Ben. We lost a lot of them to Flaming Arrows in the previous episode. We reduce them to zero in this one.
0: Yeah, pretty much close to zero. I I thought that, and then I looked it up, and according to Lostpedia, there are nine survivors who are unaccounted for. Now, I don't know how they come up with that number. I assume the people that write Lostpedia uh, spent a lot more time researching the show than I have. But the, the, I think the effect is the same, Kevin, in that the show has basically now effectively removed anyone who's not a main cast member from any kind of significance.
1: Between the freighter blowing up, between the flaming arrows, and now these two people uh, hitting landmines and being exploded into little bits and pieces, that's everybody nine, whatever, they were on the freighter or they're just time traveling in and of themselves and who cares? Right.
0: They're Essentially, I mean, essentially they're now in the position where that series Bible said that they wanted them to be, which is that the focus now is on these people that we actually know. Right. There's not random socks in the background.
1: Right. It took a little while for them to, to get to this point, but here we are. They, we almost say this, this like we're
0: celebrating. It's <laughs> like tragic. I think it's just a story decision that makes sense at this point because the narrative has changed so much. It's no longer about, you know, surviving on a deserted island. It's about figuring out what the hell's going on and what their role
1: in it is. Listen, we gave Scott, Steve, and Froger their just due. So. That's true. Well, Froger got a great shining moment. He went out in a blaze of glory. So, so to speak. Uh, He went a blaze of glory. Um, So what's going on here is we have Daniel Miles and Charlotte are going to meet up with Juliet, Sawyer and Locke because Sawyer yelled out to meet at the creek. So that's what they were. That's where Daniels, Miles and Charlotte were going when these two scrubs got blown up. And then an armed group captures them, uh, led by a woman who later we learn is named Ellie, who asked Daniel. You just couldn't stay away, could you, after he's identified as the the leader of the group. She and the, the other people in uniform bring these three folks back to their camp. As they're walking back to the camp, Miles makes a mention to Daniel that he walked over a grave that is less than a month old, that there was four bodies buried underneath, three who died from gunshots and one of radiation exposure. And Daniel also notices that one of the armed people has a bandage over his hand. It looks like he had suffered some radiation exposure, too. And, uh, when they get to the camp, they are greeted by none other than Richard Albert, looking as uh, ageless as he always is. And, uh, he, first thing he does is ask Daniel, I assume you came back for your bomb. So, uh, yeah. Well, and Richard Alpert
0: also wearing his same uniform that he always wears. It's like the Richard Alpert, uh, wing of Joseph A. Bank or something has he he always
1: looks in way, way more nicely dressed than all the other people in their army fatigues.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and, and I mean, we learn here that these are others, you know, that, yes. uh, that Juliet uh, makes this clear. And that sort of makes sense because, well, uh, one of the things you can see in other episodes is that the others just sort of inherit and assume the stuff of people who have ended up on the island. You know, they took over the barracks. They live in the barracks for a while because the Dharma Initiative came in. But then you also have them like, I mean, I'm assuming that they're wearing some of those clothes because in the the 50s, we have them in the military fatigues that they obviously took off of like dead soldiers. Uh, Let's see, we had Mikhail in a Dharma jumpsuit. They just sort of kind of absorb and incorporate all this stuff that ends up on the island. So whoever the others are, which we still don't have a real clear answer for, they kind of always just are continually absorb absorbing the things that come onto the island. Richard kind of standing out as the exception, who just kind of always looks the same. And Juliet mentions that as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll get to Juliet and all that stuff yeah. a little bit. But what you do learn is that the U.S. Army had made it to the islands. They do indeed have a hydrogen bomb that's there, and there it's in the other's possession now. The landmines that killed their, the two scrubs were planted by the army, and they think that Daniel and the rest of his group are army folks. And Daniel decides to play along with that as it's probably the best way they're going to stay alive. And he pretends that they are, in fact, there to retrieve a hydrogen bomb. He deduces that's what it is based on what actually happened in real life in the 50s with the hydrogen bomb and stuff, which you can go look up yourselves.
0: Right. It fits in very well historically.
1: Yeah. And he says that uh, he can render the bomb inert. And Alpert thinks Daniel could be lying to him and that if he takes him the bomb, he could blow it up and be on a suicide mission. But Daniel promises he won't because he is in love with Charlotte and would never do anything to hurt her. So vocalizing what we've all pretty much realized anyways. Uh, but Richard seems to buy it and uh, he he leaves the the camp momentarily. But it's a, it's a nice sweet moment with, with Charlotte. And I
0: guess Daniel. does Daniel does Daniel kind of assume that Charlotte already knows that or is that his way of confessing his love?
1: Uh, tough to say. Maybe he's he he's shooting his shot here, seeing yeah. if that's what that'll uh that'll win her over.
0: I'm just gonna say in the most loving and endearing way possible that nerds have the most awkward ways of announcing their <laughs> affection, and I say this again as a nerd who has done, you know, not the exact same thing as Daniel here. I've never um you know confessed my love for somebody to keep somebody from shooting us who's holding us at gunpoint. But I I don't know. I think it's worth saying because I think that the feeling is real and some people are just probably not quite as, you know, they're not as uh, adept at, at making their feelings known, but it doesn't mean the feelings are any less genuine.
1: Right. But so let's get to our other three people for, for a moment here where we have Juliet Sawyer and Locke who still have the, the men who tried to attack them all tied up. One of them asks why they aren't in uniform in Latin and Juliet understands this because she is an other and she was also taught Latin. So this is, I guess, something that the others all know. And I guess it carried over into Ben's camp that everyone has to learn Latin. Yeah, the modern day others still learn Latin. Uh, so one of the people has uh, the name Cunningham written on his uniform. And he reveals to the three people that the that their friends, the freighter folk, are either dead or have already been captured because they heard Say- Sawyer yell about meeting at the creek. And Juliet gets Cunningham to agree to bring them to their camp because she name drops Richard Alpert. However, the other person with them, who's wearing a uniform labeled Jones, breaks Cunningham's neck, snaps it, and begins to run away into the forest. And Sawyer instructs Locke to shoot him because Locke is armed. But Locke doesn't do it because he is one of my people.
0: Yeah, Jones uh, is a little a little hardcore here, you know? Like, just kill somebody who's given away your secrets.
1: So I'll take a minute to talk about this Jones thing here because the second I saw an episode named Jughead, I don't know about you, Ben, but the first thing that popped into my mind was Archie comics. Sure. Jughead Jones. I was even going to make a joke about wearing a crown and having a whole plate of hamburgers next to me as I was doing this podcast,
0: (laughs) but too little, too
1: late. Uh, It's almost lunchtime. I'm don't say stuff like that. You're Jones and I'm sorry, but, (laughs) but Jones is of course his last name. And uh, I didn't know this until I did a little, Reading in this, but there was a book in the 1990s called Jughead's Time Police, where in it, Jughead uses one of his uh, like a special crown given by an unknown person to travel through time where he fixes disturbances in the timeline with the help of one of his own descendants from the 29th century. Mm -hmm. So we have this episode named Jughead. We have Jones written on here and then you have this comic series from the nineties, which doesn't sound unlike what's going on with Desmond and some of the time travel stuff we have. I don't think that's a mistake.
0: I think more people should wear crowns casually. You know, I mean, Jughead did it for decades.
1: It should be like
0: a, a clothing option next to like baseball caps and visors. Just wear a crown.
1: Reminds me of the Seinfeld episode where, um, George Costanza's dad's lawyer wore a cape just as like a general fashion statement. we <laughs> like, why is he just always wearing a cape? <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe people did that with crowns. I don't know. <laughs> We're in a weird time. I'm not sure how that would work out, but yes, he's one of my people. So Locke still has this, this ownership over, over the others, despite their, their time travel.
0: Right. Despite being their leader for about 10 minutes before the time, to- <laughs> the Island moved. Well, that's Locke for you. Right? <laughs>
1: Uh, So we go back to our other group where Daniel tells Charlotte he meant what he said about loving her. uh, And then Ellie takes him uh, to Richard. Richard admits that they had to kill 18 people who were taking up camp on their island. There's this moment where Daniel asks who instructed him to do that. And he doesn't say anything, but I immediately thought this would have been Jacob's directive, possibly. Um, and then Jones returns to the camp and, uh, warns Richards of those who captured him, but doesn't think, uh, the sodding old man referring to Locke will be able to find them. But unfortunately for them, he's already there. Locke, Juliet, and Sawyer are observing them all from a distance. Uh, so Jones does not realize that Locke does indeed know the island better than he does.
0: Yeah. I love it. How he just comes sauntering out of the forest. um, um like, just probably mere minutes after, uh, The Jones guy says that. Of course, we know who it is. I mean, we're assuming people watch this, but a quote-unquote Jones.
1: Yeah. Oh, but the reveal is so great. Well, first we get Ellie walking Daniel uh, to the bomb at gunpoint. Of course, they see this happening from a distance and don't know what to think of this lock and all them. But Daniel mentions that this Ellie woman just seems so familiar. We'll get to that. She doesn't believe Daniel's story about being from the U.S. Army, but brings him to the hydrogen bomb anyways, and Jughead is written on the bomb, so that's where we get our episode title there. It's this big bomb hanging upside down, and Daniel's Daniel's observing it and notices a crack in the casing and says we need to use some concrete to fix the crack and then bury it underground. Ellie doesn't think that's going to work, but Daniel says he's sure it will because 50 years from now, the island is still here. That comment obviously jars Ellie, being like, how the hell do you know that? But at that time, Sawyer and Juliet show up and they disarm Ellie. I like how Sawyer says, you told her? (laughs) Yeah, I guess he really didn't feel like he had a choice because anything else he's saying wasn't getting Ellie to put her gun down and think they weren't in danger. For some reason, he felt like this was going to work. And thankfully, his pals arrived in time, so we never know if that's going to be the case. But then we get Locke walking into the camp, just yelling out for Richard Alpert, which of course startles everybody. And Richard, uh, comes to him and he tells Richard that Jacob sent him to the camp. This obviously gets Richard's attention. Sure. And then we, in fact, learn here that the man wearing the jumpsuit with Jones on it is actually Charles Widmore. A young Charles Widmore was once another here in the fifties.
0: And that's a huge reveal. That's huge the, reveal. I would say that's the hugest reveal of the sea of the season so far, honestly, in terms of importance, impact on the big, the big picture.
1: Yeah, most definitely. And it gives you this, it gives you a better sense of why Charles Winmore cares about this island so much. Well, uh, like Ben, he is, uh, he has a connection because he has been there. It is part of native. his life.
0: Yep. By the way, saying that Jacob sent me um, doesn't work in all situations. I just want y'all to know, I went to a pizza place the other day and said, Jacob said, give me a free pizza. And they just kind of looked at me. So it doesn't work all the time.
1: And they said, kindly leave. <laughs> they said, please leave. <laughs> <laughs> So then our final scene is Locke presenting the compass to Richard. Now, if you remember, it was, I think, the first episode before they flash through time. Richard gave Locke a compass and said the next time you see him, I'm not going to remember you, but give me this compass and this doesn't really seem to work. Richard seems kind of confused by this, but Locke presents the compass to Richard anyways. And he asked him how to get off the island because uh, Richard told him he has something very important to do off the island and that Richard should listen to Locke because he is his leader. And uh, Richard kind of scoffs at this, saying, you know, we have a very specific process for selecting a leader. And that process starts from a very young age. Locke says, hey, what year is it? And he says it's 1954. So he tells Richard that he will be born in two years on May 30th, 1956 in Tustin, California, and to come and visit uh, Locke if he doesn't believe him. So, of course, we had the episode where Locke was born, and Richard was indeed there when Locke was born. So So we get an answer for that. Why was he there? Because Locke sent him there from it's the
0: past. Ago. Yep. Well, yeah. Well, a couple of things here that I think are worth unpacking a little bit. The first is the thing that he, that Richard mentions about selecting a leader. So this appears right now that Richard is the leader, except for Jacob, who is this sort of always, you know, off out there somewhere, you know, spoken of person, you know, usually I, I guess the impression that we get from the, the present time is that Richard is a, sort of a consigliere to whoever is the leader. So he was, you know, he worked for Ben. He did what Ben wanted him to do, uh, even though he had his own opinions and he disagreed with Ben on things. And, you know, and and in some ways was actually instrumental in changing uh, of leadership there because he put Locke in season three on a path that eventually led him to become leader of the others. So, you know, there's a, I feel like there's a noted absence here of a leader. If Richard is the one that everybody's answering to. So I think that's just something worth noting that, I mean, I want, maybe if this is a transitional time between leadership or, or what. So I think it was just, it was worth noting that he talked about their leadership selection process.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting to me that it seems like Richard is the leader here. And although it seems he is ageless and maybe, uh um, always going to be alive. At some point he becomes subservient to Ben. And of course we know Ben got rid of the, the Dharma initiative and brought them in. So I think that has something to do with it, but the fact yeah. that that he is willing to, to give command to somebody else is very interesting. Well, and even then,
0: uh, y- if you remember the, you, you bring up the purge of the Dharma initiative and last season, Ben said, now, of course this is coming from Ben. So we don't know 100% if we can believe it, but that he was not the leader during the purge. Right. Like ben was not the leader. Neither was Richard. So, yeah, interesting. And then the second thing I wanted to mention too, Kevin, was this compass. So let's follow the life cycle of this compass. Locke gives the compass to Richard in 1954. Right. Right. Several years later, when Locke is a little boy, the compass is one of the items that Richard brings to him when he does that test, where he tells him to, you know, choose the thing that's already yours. And, of course, Locke fails the test. He chooses the knife or something. I think he chooses the knife, yeah, and not not the compass. compass. Go forward decades later, and Richard still has this compass. He goes to Locke at this time period that he somehow knows Locke's going to be there as he's time traveling around. Fixes his bullet wound, gives him the compass, and says, give this to me, you know, in the past. So where did the compass come from?
1: That is a fine question. I don't know. <laughs> the answer is there's no, the, the compass should not exist.
0: It'd be like if I said like right now, I'm going to have a pot of gold appear in front of me, or I'm going to have my future self walk in with a pot of gold, and then I'll time travel back and give it to my young self. You know, it's the Bill and Ted principle of time travel.
1: I think if I thought about where this compass came from any longer, I would end up like Charlotte. Your does in this episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And we'll get, let's get to that real quickly. Um, They flashed again. Locke wants to have Richard tell him how to get off the island, but it's too late. They flash. Camp's all gone. Everybody but our main people are gone. And Daniel checks on Charlotte, uh, unties her. I guess I failed to mention her and, um, uh, Miles were tied up during this whole thing yeah. and Charlotte suddenly starts bleeding from her nose and passes out and that is the end of the episode. So we knew something was going to come with Charlotte. Daniel sensed something was going to happen to Charlotte and here she uh, yeah. kind of hemorrhages and, and passes out here at the end of our episode, leaving us a kind of a scary cliffhanger.
0: Yeah, we're at a point now where this is not just a little annoyance. This is becoming like the the main gist of what is going on here with Charlotte. So,
1: yeah. So what did you think of this episode?
0: I like this episode a lot. It's so- Starting to surface a little bit some of my issues with season five, but it's still a very solid episode. I think we get our Chekhov's gun for the episode with Jughead. You don't introduce a plot element without uh, having it pay off. And so we've got this bomb now. And then you know, there's some other, I mean, some big reveals and then the thing about the radiation poisoning and how that's going to factor into everything. Lots to chew on. And as you said, I think a, a nice... Little Desmond side story that gives uh Henry Ian Cusick a chance to shine without the rest of the Oceanic Six off-island. What about you? What'd you think?
1: I like this episode a lot. I'm really glad to hear you say that because I know you've you've mentioned that you have some issues with season five, but I really enjoy this. I just like that there was a, a succinct flashback or flash forward, whatever, and a succinct a succinct island and succinct off-island story that had no intersection whatsoever. Both were very interesting, both answered some questions, both added to the overall mythology of Lost and uh, dug into some some characters like Richard and w- Charles Widmore. So I really, really enjoy that. And I thought yeah. uh, Desmond really got to shine in his flashback to, as you said, Henry Ian Cusick doing a, a, a fantastic job. So I really enjoyed this episode. I think I like this more than even our first two episodes of the season so far.
0: Yes, uh, definitely. This was an early uh, good episode of season five that uh, I think gave us a lot to chew on. and And it was just really well-constructed.
1: So do you have any other trivia or notes before we move on to the superlatives?
0: I do have one. I have a, I have one that I saved for the end here. So the scene where Desmond goes in and there's a woman who's checking some computer records to try and find Faraday, and she can't find anything about Faraday. The actress's name is Mary Ann, and I believe it's Tahani is the last name. She is a, an actress who lives in Hawaii, so obviously they hired locally. Um, and she was this is the second role she played for lost. If you may remember her all the way back in season one, she was the oceanic employee at the gate when Hurley comes running up at the last second in the flashback and she's the one who lets him on the plane after the gate has officially been closed and she and he grabs her and gives her a giant bear hug. Do you remember that scene? I do. Same actress. Wow. Okay. Mary Ann Tahaney. Now, I was looking this up just to make sure because I, I recognized her, and there's been a couple of other situations like that where a, a lost person has played uh, two different roles. So I was confirming my suspicions, and I came across this uh, on Lostpedia. A Honolulu Advisor article from January 18, 2009, explicitly addressed the fact that Mary Ann Tahaney played two different characters on the cor- throughout the course of the show. Pointing out that they were not intended to be the same character and efforts were made to change her appearance to avoid fans drawing unwanted conclusions about a connection between the two characters. Fans still drew conclusions and even dismissed the article as deliberate misinformation. So I like to revisit from time to time how obsessive and crazy Lost fans were back then. And I include myself in that wholeheartedly. I'm not trying to bash anybody else or or stand above the fray. Um, I mean, I had my share of crazy conspiracy theories, but I just think it's funny how there was an actual newspaper article about specifically saying she wasn't meant to be the same character. And there there were Lost fans in their basements with their computers going, huh, that's bullshit, they're making that up. It's all a conspiracy. That's just too funny to me.
1: So you're saying fake news was something that existed prior to our current political climate.
0: Lost fake news.
1: That's so awesome. I love that story, <laughs>
0: Isn't that great? everything
1: from being published in a newspaper of all things, not even right. like an internet article or something, but published in a, a local newspaper like this to lost fans, blatantly dismissing this after being told there's no connection between two them. Everything about this story is awesome.
0: Yeah, so I think it was a local paper. It's called the Honolulu Advertiser. So I guess it's just a local paper and they had, you know, a, a local woman on lost. It was kind of worth doing an article about. So
1: where did you stand on this? Did you buy the article or were you part of the mob saying like, ah, oh, you know, that this is crap. They're doing this to mess with us.
0: No, because I, I, knew, I knew that they had – this is one that I will definitely say I was not on board with because they, they've they done it uh, before. There was, gosh, the woman who played the psychic in the Hurley episode when Cheech Marin took him to the – remember she was looking, putting eggs in a pot and stuff, and, and then he's like, I'll give you $10,000 if you admit that your dad put me up to this. That mm-hmm. woman was in two episodes as well. I can't remember the other one that she was in. That happens all the time. Gosh, you watch X-Files and Millennium, you have people playing three or four characters over the course of a series, completely unrelated. One of whom is Terry O'Quinn, by the way. I just watched a, a rerun of, of uh, X-Files that had Terry O'Quinn in it, and then he plays another character in the X-Files movie, and then he's like a major recurring character in Millennium, which is the, the other Chris Carter series that's supposed to take place in the same universe as the X-Files. So this happens all the time. I don't think there, uh, didn't pop into my head there was anything nefarious about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, this this happens with anybody. I mean, if you look at, like Joss Whedon's projects, the same actors appear in everything. Wes Anderson movies, actor, you know, directors just get actors. They like and enjoy working sure. with and vice versa. And so they bring them into their own projects. It's not, sure. it's not that difficult to, to suss this out, guys. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that, that, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I didn't know that. And like I said, everything <laughs> about the story just makes me smile. Yeah. About That's all photos? I got. Yep. Let's do it. All right. Quote of the episode or quote,
0: so mine's a, kind of a simple one, but I thought it was important for the character of Locke is when, uh, when Sawyer asks why he didn't shoot Widmore. And he says, because he's one of my people. I think it just shows that Locke has fully embraced this role that he, he truly perceives himself to be the leader of the others now. And so that stuck out to
1: me. I had a similar one where the quote's very s- simple, but I think it explains a lot where Juliet says, Richard's always been here. Almost like he is the constant of the island. I like that because, you know, I, they rightfully ask, why did you name drop Richard of all people to these these folks speaking Latin? And that's her response.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's, I, I like what you just said about him being the constant to the island. That's heavy stuff. I had never even thought of it that way before. The, I guess the island needs a constant just like everybody does.
1: Don't we all? <laughs> Don't we all? Uh, what about the scene of the episode?
0: Okay. Hard for me to say anything other than Locke meeting Charles Widmore because of the plot significance, but also I love the way that he does it where he's like, Widmore, your name's Charles Widmore. And he says, yeah. And he says, you got a problem or something like that. And, and, uh, you know, and Locke just goes, no,
1: pleased to meet you. <laughs> yep. That's exactly the, uh, the moment I had too.
0: Okay. Any runner ups or I mean that one stands out to me. I nope. do like I like Daniel inspecting the bomb. I always think it's cool watching Daniel do science stuff because he you know he knows what he's doing and everything.
1: Yeah, I like that. I like the conversation that Locke and Richard have at the end of the episode about the whole compass and come meet mm-hmm. me in Tustin, California. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's pretty cool too. Yeah. And then yeah, and then Desmond busting into Widmore's office is pretty neat too. Oh, that is a good moment. Yeah. How about Asshole Idiot?
0: Okay. I'm giving my asshole idiot award for this episode to penny. And I am giving it to her because I was frustrated with her being frustrated about Desmond wanting to go and do this thing that Daniel had asked him to do. Initially, when you're watching, you think, well, yeah, I can understand why she would just be worried about getting involved in any of this stuff again, and I get that, but their conversation at the end of the episode I think she kind of realizes that what she is expecting is kind of dumb, which is that people come with baggage when you end up spending your life with somebody, you have to accept their baggage. This is kind of a basic thing that I think most married people understand or people who are in successful marriages, that you inherit some baggage when you marry somebody. Desmond's baggage is this craziness going on with the island. And I feel like she should have known what she signed on for and not expected it to just go away. This just doesn't work that way. I mean, I know this from my wife. She knows it from me. It comes with the deal. <laughs> so I feel like she she should not have been so surprised that this was not over. Does that make any sense or am I being mean to Penelope? No,
1: I think you're right. But Ben, I don't think you have any baggage whatsoever. Oh, thank you. <laughs> What's your asshole, idiot? I like the choice of Penny. I think it's a little more cerebral than I went. I just gave it to the young Charles Woodmore for a, just killing this guy, but b, he always just seems so confrontational and mean when he's talking. He's a
0: dick from day one, right? Like you've never known Charles Woodmore to not be a dick.
1: Just not, does not seem like a very pleasant person to be around.
0: Oh.
1: I can't he, imagine he, he ever was. He seems like the Frogert of the of the others at this point. <laughs> so
0: Ah, I like that. The frogurt of the others. The frogurt of the others who ends up with way too much power.
1: Right, the the frogurt who actually succeeded. <laughs> um,
0: takes that frozen yogurt stand and makes it a franchise.
1: That's right. <laughs> Only a couple numbers in this one. Of course, I mentioned Miles sensed four corpses in the ground earlier, yeah. and the only other one I have is that the the address of the Department of Physics is at um uh, it has forty two and eight in its address. Okay. There. That's it. Those are the only two I have. I, I didn't know about
0: you, but I didn't get any Sawyer nicknames.
1: I got three. You got three. Okay. All right. All right. So he well he calls Daniel the geek. Oh, okay, I missed so that. I, I I get a little I get a little more broad with some of these Sawyer nicknames. Like he calls Crazy Town the others' camp. Okay. Then he calls Ellie Blondie. Uh, ah, yeah, yeah, those three went right over my head somehow. I mean, freckles, blondie—you know—here we are. Sure, sure. And then uh, you said there's no music, but how about books?
0: So there's only one really tiny blink-and-you'll-miss-it book, and uh, definitely willing to confess when Lostpedia (laughs) picks up the slack. I would never have seen this otherwise. But in the background behind the nurse, I guess, in Teresa's room in the Desmond scenes when he's visiting the comatose Teresa, there is a book book. It is called the Lost Books of the Bible and Forgotten Books of Eden, and this is a collection of apocrypha. Are you familiar with the biblical apocrypha? That's that sort of thing.
1: I'm familiar with that name, but I not any much more deeper than that.
0: So, so basically, and and this is I am not a historian, um, and I'm sure there's people that can say this way better than me. At a certain point, the you know organized Catholic Church got together and decided which books were going to be in the Bible. You know, the Bible wasn't always the Bible. At some point, some people had to get together and say, hey, we've got all these old writings circulating around that have to deal with Christianity. Let's choose the ones that we are going to put in the Bible and call it the Bible. Now, Christians would believe that this this was a divinely guided process and that the Bible, as it turned out, once all these decisions were made, Were as it was meant to be, you know, so that's a personal belief thing. But one way or the other, whether you believe that was divinely inspired or just a bunch of guys sitting around, you know, deciding which books were supposed to go in the Bible, that's what happened. So there were many, many, many other Christian writings, collections, you know, uh, things like that that did not end up in the Bible. And those are known as Apocrypha. So, apocryphal, if you hear somebody say that's apocryphal, that means like sometimes. It can mean like, uh, well, yeah, that's yeah, it might be true, but it's not official, is kind of what that means. So, the lost books of the Bible and forgotten books of Eden are is a collection of those works, and I just think that's kind of neat because. With Lost, you're talking about like all these different histories on the island and what really happened, what didn't really happen. A lot of mythology related stuff in there. I remember asking my dad about the Apocrypha one time and he said, well, yeah, I said there's some crazy stuff in there. Like there's a dragon. And at the time as a kid, I didn't think about it. I should have said, dad, you know, there's a giant in the Bible, David and Goliath. (laughs) I feel like that's that far removed from a dragon. But that's what the Apocrypha are and that's what's on the back of, um, of the bookshelf there.
1: Well, I don't have anything else for this episode. I do want to mention the two writers for The Little Prince before you get into it, if that's okay. Okay, yeah. So, again, we have a new writer, Melinda Sue Taylor. Now, this is co written with Brian K. Vaughn, who we're familiar with, but mm-hmm. uh, Melinda will end up writing on five total episodes for the rest of the show. Uh, She joined the production team for season five as a co-producer and she would go on to become a producer in season six. She has a couple other works, but the two, I think that stood out to me was she wrote on medium, a couple of episodes there. And then she wrote on a couple episodes of star Wars, the clone wars, which is very beloved by star Wars fans. Yes, The season two of that in 2009, and there's writing on a couple other things, but this is her very first episode of law. She's writing here. So it's Especially this late in the show, incredibly uncommon to get two new writers on two back-to-back episodes, but Mm -hmm. maybe for you that is not necessarily the best thing, given your thoughts on uh, on (laughs) a.
0: Well, like I said, I like Jughead. This episode I had some more problems with, but uh, we'll we'll talk about it as we dive in here. I'm going to do the off-island stuff first and then the on-island stuff. And there's a lot of different directions this takes, so I'm just going to jump right in. We recap that Jack found out that Claire was his half-sister. He met Mama Littleton. I forget what her name is. We have Kate finding out that uh, she's being asked to take a blood test to prove that Aaron is hers, and she's kind of figured out that somebody knows that Aaron is not hers. Kate and Aaron meet up with Son as they're sort of running away from this problem. And then Hurley, Jack, and Saeed meet up uh, at the hospital. I guess first Hurley ends up in jail and on the island, Charlotte's getting sick. I can already tell how confused I am by so many things happening in this episode.
1: (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Hey, it's it's a lot.
0: (laughs) It is a lot going on. Okay, so that's the gist of the recap. So for our off-island stuff, we start with another scene, kind of like we did two episodes ago, where there's this scene on the boat, on Penelope's boat, Uh, that takes place just before the uh, Oceanic Six get rescued and sort of their fake rescue and become known as the Oceanic Six, where Kate makes the suggestion to Jack that they explain Aaron's existence by claiming that Aaron is hers. And Jack tells her that there's other ways to do that, but she already seems like she's kind of getting this attachment to Aaron. But then he tells her that he's going to try to convince everybody to lie tomorrow and he's going to need her support or people won't go for it. So, you know, another scene here where I would say the same I said about the last one, I didn't feel like this was a necessary scene. I feel like you can connect the dots, but I guess from a writing perspective, they put it in there to sort of cement the relationship between Kate and Aaron. I guess how important you know, he becomes to her over time after the rescue. We I didn't think them.
1: this was necessary either. And the thing I hated was Kate saying, Jack's telling her, I need you to help me keep this lie back on land. And she says like, I've always been with you, Jack. Uh, yeah. So you mean when Jack was watching you on a camera, have dirty cage sex with Sawyer, you were with him then too. Okay.
0: <laughs> well, you know, it's just, it's just another excuse to throw one of those shippy lines out there because you know that people are going to be making like, you know, Uh, message board banners and stuff out of that line the very next day, the jaders and stuff like that. it just kind of seems like
1: pretty cheap shipper bait. It it is shipper bait, but it's also like if I'm Jack, I'd be like, well, that's a bunch of bullshit. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. And there, and their relationship
0: is so tumultuous that I just, it's, I don't know. It just fell flat for me. And I just felt that the entire scene, I mean, there's another scene we get later in this episode that to me does a much better job of reminding us of how, closely connected Kate hit has been to Aaron for his entire life. So it's just unnecessary. But our next thing, our next off Island thing is Kate is leaving for an appointment. She's staying with son in the hotel room. Son is letting Aaron stay with her. And I love how she's like, Oh yeah, I've got candy in the mini bar and a hundred <laughs> cartoons. Like, let's just, let's just stuff this kid full of candy. I'm sure he'll be fine. Um, and Kate's like, great. Sir, sure. let's get him hopped up on sugar. But then she gets a package. Son gets a package delivered to her. And uh, it turns out to be, well, it's a box of chocolates. But right underneath it is a big old gun, big old handgun. And uh, she also gets a bunch of what looks like, uh, I guess, a surveillance report and some photos. So we get a quick look at these photos and it shows Ben and Beardy Jack, to the extent this looks like this might have been taken like minutes after they left the funeral parlor with Locke's body, you know, somebody's watching them. So pretty obvious what's going on here. We know that Sun is working with Widmore now. Widmore seems perfectly happy to let her do some dirty work because she would like some revenge against Ben Linus presumably the rules the quote unquote rules that uh, were laid out last season or not laid out but mentioned that they existed would prevent widmore and ben from killing each other i mean was that is that a fair assumption because we have this idea that he wasn't supposed to kill ben's daughter either right yeah so son true. might be trying to might be doing charles widmore's dirty work for him and uh, whether she's okay with that or not doesn't matter she blames ben for Jen's death. So she's kind of caught in the middle of this now, basically. The meeting that Kate goes to, she's trying to bargain with the attorney who wanted the blood samples. She says, okay, I'll give you the blood samples, but I want to talk to your client. And the attorney basically says, well, you're really not in any position to bargain. We have the legal right and the legal means to obtain the blood from you no matter what. So yeah, I'll ask my client, but hey, I pay attention to the dialogue here and I liked how they kept the gender of the client ambiguous too. Like he never said, I'll ask him or I'll ask her. He said, I'll ask my client. And I thought, right. wow, that's really shrewd on his part. So, uh, which comes into play later, we pick up with Saeed in the hospital recovering. He gets attacked again, like an orderly comes in and uh, immediately whips out a gun and starts trying to trank him again, strangles the hell out of this guy. doesn't kill him. I think he shoots him full of two trank darts But then in his pocket, the guy mentions like with his last gasping breath, something about his pocket and Saeed finds in his pocket an address and uh, Jack takes a look at it. And it turns out to be the address for Kate's place, which, of course, makes
1: them very scared about what may, may be about to happen to Kate. I sure hope the IV was not still in Said's arm when he choked the guy with this. Cause that would hurt like a mother. <laughs> That's right. He was asking Jack to take the IV out. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, Ben comes in here too. It gets involved at this point too. So we have Saeed, Ben and Jack together. Hurley in the LA County jail. There's like a kind of a one note, really funny scene of him in an orange jumpsuit. Which I just think it's funny seeing Hurley in an orange jumpsuit. But he's like – I think what's funny to me about the episode, he's super proud of himself for ending up in jail. I know. Um, <laughs> Jack, it did exactly what you said. You know, like he's uh, treating Ben as the bad guy, which, you know, of course is perfectly understandable. Not much trust going around in this group, so they split up again. Uh, said and Ben are going to get Hurley, and Jack is going to get Kate. Uh, I think at this point they, he had already yeah he had already talked to Kate and Kate had said that Sun was also in town so uh, we've got all the Oceanic six here sort of lining up and what this started to reminded me of a little bit Kevin was. You know, what we talked about at the end of part one of last season finale, where you have all these people in these different locations and you're sort of waiting to sort of see how they come together, because we know that all these people have to come back to the island. Plot wise, that's what we're being told has to happen. And it looks like it's starting to come together pretty nicely, honestly.
1: Yes, because even Hurley being in jail doesn't seem to be a a major obstacle, strangely.
0: Yeah, it doesn't seem like they're just like, oh, we're just going to go get Hurley. Right. Bust him out of jail. Whatever. Hey, what can't we do as a group guys, (laughs) by the way, I saw you message me there. Claire's mother's name is Carol Littleton. So yeah, it's that works. It's a very similar name. So uh, hopefully that'll help me remember it. Jack calls Kate to warn her, but she's kind of preoccupied and we find out why basically Jack catches up with her and she tells him about the whole blood test thing. And they end up following the attorney's car. So she's sitting outside this parking garage, which I guess is next to the uh, law firm. And then when she sees the guy leave, they tail him. And Jack is pulling his usual stuff at this point. The whole, like, no, tell me, no, tell me, just tell me what's going on. The kind of like, that just over forcefulness that's really obnoxious when, because he even later says, he's like, I can fix this. I can fix it. You know, it's like Jack laying all of his issues on his sleeve. Not much has changed since bearded Jack became regular Jack again. He's kind of still up to his old stuff. Attorney goes to a hotel. It appears that the client is Claire's mother carol and we get the i can fix this kate i can fix it from jack he tries to talk to carol but she doesn't know what he's talking about she doesn't even know who aaron is jack goes back and tells kate that apparently you know that she sued oceanic over claire's death and is getting a settlement and um the attorney just happens to be the same attorney of course that's you know suspicious to Kate so meanwhile Saeed and Ben meet up with that same lawyer and he says that the uh, the county has no case against Hurley so this this lawyer's working on like three different things he's working on the lawsuit for Carol settlement with Oceanic working for Ben on getting Hurley out of jail and then he's also working for Quote unquote mystery client getting blood sample from Kate. But of course, the purpose of this scene is to make it patently obvious to anybody who hasn't figured it out already that the attorney is working for Ben. Now, Kevin, were you surprised at all by this?
1: I just thought maybe he was a really big fan of the Oceanic Six.
0: Somehow mysteriously entangled in all of their lives. I mean, I will. I gotta tell you, from the minute that guy knocked on the door, I knew it was Ben. And I and I'm somebody who's perfectly willing to admit when stuff on Lost surprises me. I'm not trying to sound like a know-it-all when I say this, but this was a really obvious one to me. And I just didn't. I felt like it. They lent way too much mysteriousness to something that to me was a pretty
1: easy guess. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Yeah, I mean, you can really all boil it down to Ben and all this stuff, to be honest with you.
0: Well, see, you go back to the end of season four when he's talking to Jack and, you know, they're talking about how to get the Oceanic Six back together. And, you know, he's like, Kate won't even speak to me. And Ben says, well, I have some ideas about that. So this to me is like just the natural logical extrapolation. Ben is a conniving, cunning little schemer. And this is the way he would go about forcing kate to interact with the rest of the people so it does not surprise me at all and i felt like it was a little bit overwrought the suspense with which they treated something to which to me was kind of an easy guess but i
1: think I think it's a fair criticism
0: yeah all these different plot threads finally kind of coalesce because when they parted ways ben told jack to get kate and take her to the marina slip 23 of course one of our numbers they end up there, so Hurley's the only one that's not there, I guess, at that point. Said's there, Kate... Jack and Ben and they're all talking and uh, of course Kate sees Ben and she just about goes nuts and because Kate is not an idiot or at least she's not being written as an idiot in season five immediately figures out that he's the one behind this so like that to me is proof positive that it was an easy guess because she just in two seconds she figures out he's the one behind this she figures out that Ben's the one that's been uh you know trying to arrange the situation for the blood test but you know Jack tries to explain that uh you know he's on their side It's one of those things with Ben where I feel like his intention was in the right place of trying to get all these people together, but he does it in a really conniving way. And one of the last things we see is that in addition to this whole crew standing around at the docks, off in the distance, we see Sun with her gun and Aaron. She brought Aaron along for the assassination, which I think is funny. Aaron's just chilling out, relaxing uh, in a car seat in the back while his auntie son goes out and carries out an assassination. She's just kind of watching the scene unfold and getting ready to make her move against Ben. And that's that's uh, the last of the off-island stuff that we have.
1: The family that kills together stays together.
0: Apparently. You know, a lo- there's a lot going on here. I mean, was it, is it just me or was it more convoluted than it needed to be?
1: Yeah, me- messy is the way I would describe it. I feel like this yeah. could have been more succinct, more spot on and and yeah, it just some felt off about it. Not like terrible or anything, but just weird. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. Not terrible,
0: you know. And I'll, and I'll say my least favorite season of Lost is still better than most television. So it's uh, <laughs> right. not like I'm not trying to nail the writers to a cross for this or anything. But this to me is early symptomatic of things that get that happen more later too, where like just situations end up being more convoluted than they need to be, and I think it's because we can't seem to pin down certain motivations. This group should be functioning a little more cohesively at this point, I feel, but maybe, maybe that's, maybe I'm not paying enough attention to the timeline that this has been three years since these folks have been interacting with one another. I don't know. I, I it just, it just feels messy. I think messy is a really good word for it. Or maybe what this should have been is this should have been condensed into only a couple of these, a couple of these storylines per episode. Just stay focused because I think that the, like what you were saying about the Desmond episode stands in stark contrast to this. You know, you have a nice focused Desmond story off Island. And then here you have like seven different narratives going on at the same time. It's crazy. So it didn't really work for me too well. I, unfortunately.
1: I do think that is part of it too, is watching last episode where there is beauty and the simplicity of both stories. And then here we are and it's, Because you now have to keep up with all the Oceanic Six plus all the stuff going on on the island, and it's just too much information to, to absorb.
0: Right. Yeah. And I mean, to jump from there into the island stuff, I mean, it is just as crazy and convoluted there just for different reasons, because this is essentially like the episode of the Time Flashes. You know we've been flashing since the very beginning of the season, but with this, it seems like it's happening every two minutes. Because where we start is uh, on the island is of course where we left off last time with Charlotte having passed out and like bleeding from her nose and everything, and everybody's sort of looking after after her. Miles gets some water, and Daniel explains. Well, I guess actually I should say that Sawyer concludes this on his own first that the flashing is what's doing this to Charlotte. And I actually liked that Sawyer said something about it first, because if you go back to episode one and I gave Daniel, and I think we both did maybe, uh, Daniel asshole idiot for acting like nobody else could understand what was going on. So I really liked that Sawyer was the one who's like, duh, the flashing is what's doing this to her. Like it does not take a PhD to figure that out.
1: Yeah, and then when he says that, and then Daniel explains it, you're like, "That was was that so hard? Was that so hard to to put it <laughs> right, into, right. that way?" He just he
0: just confirms it rather than being like, "It would be so hard for me to even explain to like a nuclear physicist, let alone to you, Sawyer." No, he just says yeah that's basically what happens and he, <laughs> and he he boils it down he says basically it's like really really bad jet lag he's kind of explaining it to Juliet the missing piece here is he does not know why it is only happening to Julie or to Charlotte it doesn't make sense that that she's the only one that that is uh, that's happening to lot. Lock- Kind of has been, he's been standing kind of at a distance from this whole thing unfolding and gets doing some thinking because when Sawyer comes over to talk to him, he says, We need to go back to the orchid because that is where things got messed up. You know, this is where. Ben went to move the island. He says, you know, this is where everything went wrong. Maybe this is how we'll get it to stop is by going back to the orchid. Um, He doesn't really have a plan. He doesn't know what they're going to do. But, you know, considering they're jumping around in time, they can't even really have a home anymore, so to speak. The beach camp may or may not be there from minute to minute. That the only thing they can think of to do is go to the orchid and see if they can figure something out. So, you know, everybody agrees to this plan. He also kind of preys on Sawyer's affection for Kate a little bit, kind of saying, you know, don't you want to see her again? Like he kind of goes through the same thing that Ben's going through off island, which is, you know, everybody needs to come back. All this is happening because they left. Don't you want to see Kate again? That sort of thing. And he suggests that they take they go back to the beach camp and take the raft around the island. It'll save time getting to the orchid. So that's where they what their current plan is going to be. On the way to the raft, we figure out when we are through two different scenes. We see Kate, I guess the, well, briefly we see a light and we figure out later, uh, Locke mentions that this was the light coming from the hatch door when he was pounding on it after Boone had been killed. That kind of puts it in time. And of course, if we remember back to season one, the other thing that was happening at the same time was Claire was giving birth to Aaron. And uh, this time, though, actually Sawyer gets to watch it um, from the uh, from the other side of like a hedge or some bushes to kind of place it in time of where we are. Now, this is what I was talking about, Kevin, in that uh, I felt like this this is the scene that does a better job of reminding us that Kate has been part of Aaron's life since the minute he was born. And I feel like that was really poignant and also renders that first scene again completely redundant because the survivors did become a family in that first season, and she was right there when Claire gave birth, you know?
1: Yeah, that's all you need. It's all you need. It's it's
0: economy of writing because you're serving – the best written scenes serve multiple purposes because you have that element of it, and then you also have, of course, Sawyer seeing this and seeing Kate, which, of course, gets followed up in a little bit. Uh, meanwhile charlotte says she's feeling better oh but then miles now has a nosebleed that's right and then they flash again so their next flash they get back to the beach camp so they kind of just i guess basically like they're just they will flash and they will keep moving because there's really nothing they can do about it they just keep flashing through time but the main point is to get back to the beach camp to get the rafts but they get back to the beach camp and the raft is gone The beach camp looks like it's, so it's there, you know, I mean, we've, we've seen time periods that they've been in now where the, uh, the beach camp isn't even there, like there in the past and it hasn't even been built yet, but it looks like it's been abandoned for a long time. There's junk everywhere. There's these two unknown canoes and the raft is gone. So the conclusion that one could reach from this is that they are probably in the future at this point. Although how long, there's no way to know. But one clue we get is that Miles looks in one of these outrigger canoes and finds a water bottle that has an Ajira logo on it. And Ajira, you'll remember from last episode, is, uh, was a, a little Easter egg in the music video, the promotional music video they did for season five. And everybody's like, what the heck is Ajira? And uh, Juliet just happens to know they're an airline that flies internationally. So what's an Ajira water bottle doing on the island? It's a great mystery. But they take so they take one of the canoes and head around the island. This is what they were going to do with the raft, but they uh, but they do with canoes instead, which uh, elicits a great line from Miles, where he says, "This plan <laughs> sounded a lot better when we were doing it with a motorboat." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. I of I mean, rowing. you don't
1: expect you don't expect these geeks to use a lot of upper arm strength, I think.
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> Nobody told Miles it was going to be arm day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then this scene unfolds where they all of a sudden they start getting shot at. They're out here, uh, they're, um, they're in the ocean on this outrigger, paddling around the island to get to the orchid. And uh, they start getting shot at by some, what looks like an, another outrigger from a distance behind them. We cannot see who is in it there. You know, it's just some shadowy figures we can barely make out from the horizon, but they're shooting at them. Nobody gets hit though, because they flash yet again. And uh, we get a fun line from Sawyer here where he says, thank you, Lord, right as they're flashing, because, of course, this is getting them away from the gunfire. And they flash right into the middle of a massive thunderstorm. And he says immediately, I take that back. So that's kind of fun. But I am at the point here where I feel like the flashing is starting to get old. Um, again, it just feels completely disrupts the narrative of what's going on. And and it's all completely for convenience sake. You know, I know that they're saying, oh, the flashing's random. But it's not random when you're in the writer's room and you're saying, well, how can we quickly get them away from these guys that are shooting at them? Oh, have them flash at that moment.
1: Do you, you get right. what I'm saying? I do. And when when Locke says, you know, we can go to the Orchid and maybe we can stop what's startle us, I said, please, please do. <laughs> Let's get these flashes to stop, so you don't have Seriously, to watch them anymore.
0: Yeah, and I mean the other flaw in that logic is what if you show up at the the orchid and the orchid hasn't been built yet? You know, it wasn't built in 1954, and that's where you just were. So I mean, they I just have to wait until the next one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, no, I know all they can do is go there and hope. I get that, but it's it's just becomes frustrating. So they're in the thunderstorm. They get back to shore. Uh, on the other side of the island, Juliet and Sawyer sit down and they have a nice moment here because Juliet obviously knows what's going on in Sawyer's head some because he shared that he saw Claire giving birth uh, to Aaron and that Kate was there helping to deliver the baby. So, you know, he uh, he confides in her a little bit. He opens up. This is kind of nice because Sawyer and Juliet have not had much interaction in a long time. Sawyer was, uh, I guess, for the entirety of season four, they were separated because Sawyer was over at the uh, camp or sorry, at the barracks. And prior to that, uh, they had a very antagonistic relationship. I mean, the first time these two met, she was shooting electric shocks into him when he was being kept in a cage. So this moment is kind of nice to see her just kind of show some sympathy for what he's going through. And then he points out that her nose is bleeding. So this starts to be spreading. Maybe it's just really dry on the island. (laughs) It's just really dry. (laughs) Well, uh, I uh, I think this happened – at some point in the episode, there's a conversation where Miles mentions his nosebleed to Daniel, and Daniel says that he doesn't know why it's only happening to certain people, but that he thinks that it might have to do with the amount of exposure, meaning how long – essentially meaning how long you've been on the island to be exposed to the flashing. And Miles says, well, that's stupid because these guys have been on the island for months. I've only been in here two weeks. And he says, are you sure about that? So –
1: Setting up a mystery. I was hoping, like, when he's like, "What are you talking about? We just got here." Like, you just see, like, Daniel just look at the camera and give that, or have we? <laughs> right, right, yeah.
0: <laughs> it's almost that bad, though, where he goes, like, you know, are you sure about that? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> um, it's almost like it's almost a, uh, like to me a line that fell a little flat. In I think I even mentioned it in um, season four finale was when uh, Charlotte goes like would it make any sense to you if I told you I was trying to figure out where I came from or something like that? Huh. Like, we're like, yes, Charlotte, it makes sense. Like, because we know you're a character on a show and you can have a history. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so, you know, this, this kind of, this is some real handholding for the audience that I think just kind of, it just falls a little flat for me because we obviously know where this is leading, but uh I guess the last time we see these folks is they find some wreckage right near where they uh, brought their uh, outriggers ashore. It's not something that we recognize. We see like a life raft and some miscellaneous like equipment and stuff like that. But a lot kicks over this box. And on the side of it is a word that if have really good memories, we might remember. And it is a French word that is bezidusé, I think is how it's pronounced. And the only way I know how that's pronounced is because a very keen ear will have heard that word used on the French transmission. Now, of course, anytime anything French gets brought up, we think of the same thing on the island. And before long, we are cutting to a scene of a whole bunch of people that we do not recognize on a raft. Uh, This is in the same storm that the survivors were in just a few minutes ago. A bunch of people talking to each other in French, yelling at each other. So they're kind of in the middle of the ocean, but they spot a body floating on some debris nearby they paddle over and get it and kevin who is it who is this mysterious person
1: oh it's jin it is one jin now, suquan ben i want you to take me back to spring of 2009 when you're with your group of people watching lost what the reaction was in the room when you realized jin was still alive
0: uh we already knew jin was going to survive <laughs> how did you know that <laughs> Because there had not been any pomp and circumstances around his death. I'm going to have to disappoint you and say that there was no gasping major reaction. This, this was an interesting set of circumstances here because, Kevin, if you'll remember back in season two when Ana Lucia and Libby were killed. There were rampant rumors going around that Cynthia Watros and Michelle Rodriguez were fired from the show because they both got DUI charges within a really short time frame. Right. Just we had this conversation. The producers vehemently denied it. They said that has nothing to do with it. The answer, to the explanation they gave, which makes sense to me, is that they had always planned to kill, kill Ana Lucia. Michelle Reed Rodriguez did not want to be a permanent fixture on a show but that the fan reaction to Ana Lucia was so negative that they did not feel like they would get the proper feeling of Michael's betrayal by killing off a hated character, so they had to kill off another character. Makes sense to me. Just before Jin's quote-unquote death in Season 4, Daniel Day Kim got a DUI. (laughs) (laughs) and so the whole thing was, you know, Oh God, are they repeating history? You know, is this, is there really truth to this whole thing of you get a DUI, you get kicked off a loss. The producers were a little cagey about it, but I don't think they really made too much of a clandestine secret that Jen was not done by that point in the show. Kevin, it had become like sort of a tradition for any actor who whose character was killed on the show, for them to show up on Good Morning America the next morning and do an interview. It had happened with people all the way from like Boone all the way through Charlie. These deaths were always sort of ceremonial in some sense. There was very little squeaking about it. And so it's not like there were not these interviews with Daniel Day Kim where it's like, hey, what projects are you going to go to next or whatever? or You know, oh, I've really enjoyed my time on Lost, but blah, 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 blah. There was just kind of like radio silence. Interesting. Okay. And it's almost like one of those silence speaks volumes type of scenarios. So I think the internet community of Lost knew that he was not actually off the show. I mean, to their credit, the producers did their part in not talking about him at all. And the season five promotional artwork did not have Daniel Day Kim on it. Now, they did release a modified version after this episode that then featured him on the season five promotional artwork. But <laughs> they tried to keep it under wraps. But I think for a character, a main cast member that big, it, it would be hard to kind of keep it a secret. So uh, sadly, sad to tell you, Kevin, but we did actually know that Jen was was not dead. Damn, I know, and 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 I will say too, it's been it's been. uh, I I actually found it more challenging to sort of tap dance around that knowledge doing this podcast, because we, uh, as a practice, are assuming that folks are watching this for the or listening to us at the same time they're watching the show for the first time. We're trying to stay spoiler free in case people want to do that, you know, follow along with us. But of course, having both watched uh, the show before, we actually knew that Jin was coming back. Yes. So we tap danced around it a little bit.
1: <laughs> we did. We did. Well, to be fair, I knew he was going to be back because I have vivid memories of him doing stuff right. in season five. But I was, right. didn't remember how they got to that point.
0: Yeah. And I mean, everything that we said about his death, though, remains true. Or his quote unquote death, which is that it was it is a major character ch- turning point for Sun. That doesn't change because she doesn't realize right now that uh, that he's alive. So.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Give, it's, it's additional fuel to get her back to the Island, but she is unaware of this. Right.
0: Right. Um, so now, you know, of course we're getting revelation after revelation here. The other one is that of course, this French crew that we're being introduced to here is the same crew of none other than Danielle Rousseau who reveals herself at the end of the episode played by a younger actress, uh, of course, not p- played by Mira Ferlin. This we also sort of vaguely alluded to uh, last season when we said that the story of Danielle Rousseau was not finished. That was something that even the producers had said at the time. You know, Mira Furlan decided that she didn't want to be on the show anymore, but they were determined to continue uh, to maybe reveal things about that character. And this is how they've decided to go about doing it. We are now, we've decided, they've decided that we're going to encounter her in the past. And that's how we close out the episode: is uh, Jin and Danielle introducing themselves to one another. So, a lot of stuff going on, and some big reveals, some big important mythology reveals. But Kevin, what were your overall thoughts about this episode?
1: Again, not the best flashback scene. I thought the online stuff was pretty good. I think the ending was pretty awesome with Jin coming back and the young Danielle thing. (laughs) But you know, the time jumping was a little here and there. It was not not my favorite episode but a couple of really big things here kind of saved it at the end
0: yeah so like i think a couple of the specific reveals like that we are meeting you know past time rousseau and that Jin is alive and stuff like that and some of the clues that we get thrown like what's this Ajira water bottle doing in this canoe are great that is some you know good meaty stuff the kind of stuff that we like as lost fans To me, the problem is that it is really quickly becoming bogged down in just being overly complex. And I was thinking about it today as I was getting my notes ready about, you know, sort of trying to pin down why this episode is problematic. And to me, why it sort of signals the beginning of some of my problems with season five. And I think it's because they've moved away from having the episodes be centric to one character because Neither of these episodes is really centric to one character about the closest that you could say is that the off Island part of, of episode three is Desmond centric, but that's about it. Mm. This episode is completely all over the place. What do you think?
1: I think there is something to that, but I also think strong writing can, can make do with this larger cast of characters.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, I agree with you in strong writing, had centric episodes but also a cast of over 10 people for four seasons <laughs> so you're right your theory is proven true by previous seasons that strong writing can overcome this kind of thing and even i mean even if you just go to the season four finale just a few episodes ago you had a million things going on in that episode and they were under an immense time crunch because of the writer's strike and they still managed to figure out a way to make it work the difference of what works versus what doesn't between that episode and this one is a little harder to pinpoint because that episode, the finale, didn't really have a single centric character either. But, like, I find myself, I find it, I found myself wondering, like, since they, at least for the time being, seem to have abandoned this idea of centricity with the episodes, would that have served to improve this episode? I was thinking about possibilities, like, what if this was a sun-centric episode and just sort of a few more rewrites to make the off-island stuff more focused on her. And then the on-island stuff would be more meaningful when Jin shows up alive. That's just one example. Or or if it was a Kate-centric episode and have her have more of the focus and then the on-island stuff with Sawyer seeing her you know, again, this sort of connection between her and Aaron be, going back as far as the moment of his birth would then be more meaningful, too.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I, I would have I would have made this a Kate-centric flashback and more Sawyer-centric because we know the next episode is going to be very Jin and Son-heavy. So I think ending with the return of Jin and then the Rousseau reveal and then you can concentrate on Jin and Son as the central focus of the next episode.
0: Yeah. With all the other yeah. stuff
1: like the getting the gun and going to going to the meeting point where Kate and them are.
0: Right. I just think there's so many ways that they could have well, not so many. I don't want to sound like I'm some genius and they're morons or anything. This is these are professional writers, and I'm not trying to downplay that and I'm not trying to sound like I know better, but I feel like that the mandate of the first three, four seasons was each episode of Lost with the occasional exception has a main character and that other things happen, there's B stories, there's, you know, other characters that get characterization. That's not all sacrifice just to have one character at the center, but that that sort serves as sort of the nexus of everything that happens in the episode, flashback and present time, again, referring to the first three seasons. Without that, I feel like this just loses a lot of cohesion. And it gets, I feel like it's symptomatic that I'm, that I'm, I have, sometimes I get lost doing the recap, no pun intended. But like the, you know, I'm doing the recap, I'm like, wait, have, who's, who's with who? Has who met up with who yet? Has this happened yet? Cause, cause it's just, there's not as much of a, a singular narrative thrust. And I feel like the episode suffers as a result of that. That's just one guy's opinion. I know a lot of people were having a blast at this point in the show, like with uh, things kind of moving at a fast pace like this. So, to each their own, maybe somebody disagrees with me and I would welcome a rebuttal.
1: And we invite them to leave their rebuttals at yeah. Lostbot on Twitter or LostbotQuestion at gmail.com.
0: <laughs> Tell me how I'm wrong about season five. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I welcome that wholeheartedly. I really do. Bottom line, still more entertaining than just about anything I've ever seen on television. Lots of stuff moving the story forward and lots of good surprises. I think the ending with Jin and and then uh, sort of a one-two punch there. of Oh, hey, Jin's alive. Oh, hey, we're seeing, you know, a uh, past version of Rousseau. Wow. It makes you really uh, look forward to the next episode. So let's see. Oh, I do have a couple other quick things. Sorry, I just found my notes section. Um, the printout that Sun had, did not have anything on it that's the kind of thing where whenever somebody sees writing on a page everybody tries to analyze it apparently it was a transcript from a video game (laughs) they just probably found something on their desk and printed it out so just in case you were thinking of doing the frame by frame thing don't bother it's not relevant jorge garcia gave his uh voice to the uh the numbers that the french team was listening to the producers were very quick to say that is just an easter egg Because there were a lot of wild time travel theories going around at this point, like that Hurley was somehow the creators of the numbers, the creator of the numbers that he would end up in the distant past or something. They wanted to say, well, the fact that Jorge Garcia read the numbers does not mean he's the originator of the numbers. But man, talk about teasing the lost fans, you know?
1: Yeah, come on, what are you (laughs) guys thinking? (laughs)
0: Uh, and then last but not least the van that uh, Ben and Saeed are driving uh, says Canton Rainier on it Uh, two last names I guess of a a repair company Canton Rainier uh, mixed around uh, is an uh, anagram for reincarnation and we remember what's inside that van right now right well I guess it was and then they dropped it off at the butchers but uh, that would be the dead body of one John Locke so it's up to keep in mind
1: all right, I'm now sure that's just an error, just just a coincidence. Just a
0: coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> All right, now we can do superlatives. What'd you get for your quote of the episode?
1: Well, you already did the one with uh, with Sawyer saying "Thank the Lord for the time travel," and then the "I take that back" yes. when they landed. When uh, when Jyn is recovered, he's asked, "Are you okay?" and he just goes, "I guess." <laughs> <laughs> just the way he says it, I love. <laughs>
0: Uh, I like how much English he's getting now. So
1: he's kind of. Yeah. But um, just like assessing, like, yeah, I guess.
0: I guess one other bite, bright spot to me, too, is just a brief conversation that uh, Sawyer had with Locke, where, uh, you know, after Sawyer mentions to him that the light that they saw was the moment when Locke was pounding on the hatch door in mourning after Boone had died and sort of questioning his destiny and all this stuff. And Sawyer asks him why he wouldn't go over to his past self and explain things to him so that his past self didn't have to go through all that pain. And Locke says, I needed that pain to get to where I am now. Because it's a it's a big theme of lost, you know, the people bring their troubled pasts to the island and then they figure out how to move past them the needing the pain to where i get to know or to get to where i am now is goes all the way back to the moth conversation that Locke had with charlie in season one when he explains that it would actually be a disservice to that moth to you know widen the opening to let it get out of its cocoon because struggling to emerge from the cocoon is what makes that moth strong um so i thought that was poignant and relevant what's your favorite moment of the episode
1: has to be the ending with the, the discovering of Jin's body. And then Jin realizing a young Russo has saved him.
0: Yeah. Both good moments. Um, I went with the outrigger chase. We will revisit the outrigger chase in conversation. The whole, uh, we don't know who's shooting at us and we don't know what time period we're in. Situation is something that immediately lit up uh, the message boards with speculation. So that is a, uh, again, going back to which <laughs> your, your profound disappointment on learning that I already knew that Jen had survived. <laughs> One thing that immediately started a lot of conversation was the outrigger chase. So we definitely had things to talk about.
1: What about your asshole idiot
0: for the episode?
1: Can I give it to a writer? No, I'm just kidding. Oh,
0: um, <laughs> yes, I mean, you could. but. <laughs>
1: Maybe I'll just give it to Son for bringing Aaron to the to the meeting with Ben at all. That's a pretty
0: good one. I'm just imagining like, oh yeah, he's sleeping peacefully now. But what about when a couple gunshots go off? Really,
1: Son? Uh.
0: I'm thinking, imagining like, oh yeah, Kate, I'll I'll take care of Aaron, no problem. I might have to stop by for a quick assassination (laughs) later, but you know, I'll just bring him with me. We'll be back by dinner. We'll be back by dinner after the assassination. I gave my asshole idiot for the entire Oceanic Six who did not figure out that the attorney was Ben's before the reveal. Like that just felt like that was such an obvious thing. You know, and Kate figures it out in two seconds, you know. Um, so good on Kate. What'd you get for some number? Well, can I do mine first since you almost always get more than me? Of course. Okay. It's your episode. All right. Usually the ones I get are just the obvious ones. Obviously, uh Slip 23 is the location where they all meet up on the docks at the Long Beach Marina. Kate's address is 42 Panorama Crest. And then Jack mentions to Saeed that he has been asleep for 42 hours. What else have you got?
1: The only other obvious one was that on um the, what's his name? Like the lawyer's license plate. Was there a four and an eight? when uh, Kate was tracking him leaving his office. OK. Uh, and then Lost PD has two really stupid ones. OK. Uh, one is that uh, the box of chocolates that Sun has delivered has 15 chocolates in it. <laughs> and then the other one is that, or there's two more. The one is that the, the raft of the, the Rousseau's expedition has, has eight rafts, sides. Ra- yeah. rafts A lot of things sides. have
0: eight sides. The Dharma initiative logo has eight sides.
1: Right. Um, and then Juliet shot four times at the people in the outrigger. Yeah. Great.
0: Yeah. Those are all kind of like the kinds of things where I think like, uh, eh, I don't know. That's intentional. Juliet shooting at the other people and the other outrigger. It's like, well, she could have shot seven times and some of them just ended up on the cutting room floor. Sawyer so nicknames. I only, uh, found one where he called lock Johnny boy at one point, which I think he's done before. Actually, it was relatively nickname free. No music again in this episode, which is actually kind of a shame because I thought there was some really good music in this episode, especially when they um, uh, when they set out to the Orchid for the first time and then during the Outrigger chase. So it's too bad they didn't include a track from this episode. And then lastly for books, so the, the episode title is The Little Prince, um, which may be kind of weird and abstract at first, but it does have a few connections to the episode. First of all, The Little Prince. I think uh, some people just thought, well, that's referring to Aaron because a lot of the uh, the drama in this episode is centered around Aaron and you know his his uh, uh, his parents and custody of him and all that stuff. So, um, and I think that's true. That probably helped them settle on this title. The Little Prince is actually a book by a French author named Antoine de Saint-Exupery. I am sure that's pronounced incorrectly. But uh, it is about an alien boy who leaves his home asteroid to explore the universe. And the narrator of the book is someone who meets this quote-unquote little prince after surviving a plane crash in the desert. So we've got our plane crash in the uh, story of the little prince. Uh, It also went on to be an animated television show, which this probably dates me as older than you, Kevin. But I remember them playing reruns of this show on Nickelodeon in the 80s when I was a kid. That's probably a little bit before your time, I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, I don't remember this at all. Yeah. <laughs> there was even a little jingle and all that
0: stuff. And then also the connection to this too is the name of the ship that Danielle's crew was originally on, which is the Bessiduze. That's actually French for B612, which is the name of the asteroid that the boy left in The Little Prince. So it's named after that. So some connections in there that that make the uh, episode title a little more apparent as to why they chose it. And that's what I've got for books.
1: Next week, uh, episodes five and six, big, big stuff on that episode six there at least. Yeah. Uh, so a big, big episode to be tuning in for next week here on From Podcast Depth.
0: All right. Sounds good. We'll see you then.